0: Okay, good morning, everyone. So today for our stand-in and stand-alone class, since we're coming up on Holy Trinity Sunday, we'll be looking at the Athanasian Creed, which we'll confess. Our Our custom here at Faith is to confess the Apostles' Creed one week and then the Nicene Creed the next and so on and so forth all around the year with this one opportunity to confess the Athanasian Creed. So we'll get into that, and again, this isn't going to be in any tremendous depth or detail. It's to give you a working knowledge of what it is you're confessing, and opportunity to answer any questions you might have along the way, as is usually the case with at least a couple of parts of the Athanasian Creed. We'll begin with an invocation and the Lord's Prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. All right, so in front of you is a handout with the Athanasian Creed. It's divided up in responsive parts. That's one of the ways that we have opportunity to confess. You can confess the full, the full thing altogether, pastor and people in the divine service, or do it in the way that you have set before you. Just a few words It's called the, about the Athanasian Creed. It's called the Athanasian Creed, though it's probably misnamed. It's named after Athanasius who has one of the greatest names because Thanatos in Greek means death. So Athanasius is the deathless one. And so obviously a Christian name, Athanasius. Athanasius himself lived in, he was born in the late third century and lived into 373, so the latter half of the fourth century. He's generally thought to be a fourth century guy since Most of his years are in that time period. His claim to fame is that he was a champion of orthodoxy over and against the heretic named Arius. Arianism rejected the divinity of the Son, so Jesus is not true God, and in so doing, then rejected the Trinity. So you'll be able to see why in a minute this is attributed to Athanasius because the whole first half of the Athanasian Creed is getting the Trinity right and the whole second half is getting the Incarnation or the Divinity of Jesus right. Modern Arians go by the name Mormon. They believe that (laughs) Jesus was not God, but became God, in the same way that the Father was not God, but became God, and that we are not gods, but can become gods. And so you can see that any way in which the Mormons confess a Trinity, or any way in which the Mormons confess Jesus, is going to be fundamentally different than how the rest of Christianity confesses the Trinity and Jesus. And if you looked for the historical root or origin of this way of thinking about God, you find the arch-heretic Arius. So Arius' role in the formation of Orthodox Christian theology, especially in the West, but we're early enough that it really is the universal church, East and West, on most of these points. Uh, his effect on all of that can hardly be overstated. Let's see. A few other words about Athanasius. Um, Wrote two famous pieces. uh, On the Incarnation is the first. And read through this a couple of times, most recently with Vicar Doty. And then what was more popular at the time, and has since become second to On the Incarnation, is his work, The Life of Antony. So, in many respects, he popularized the nation movement of monks who would go into the desert to live lives of piety. This is a good read, and it's worthwhile. Obviously, as Lutherans, we've um, got some quibbles with uh, certain aspects of monastic life, and especially monasticism as it presented itself in the unique context of the medieval period. Um, but Athanasius is a helpful read to sort of balance that out and also just to perceive the way that the early church perceived monasticism, especially of Antony, famous desert father. Unforgettable story. You'll love it. So there's two texts by Athanasius. But again, this creed is only named after him because this was his theology, and it continues to be our theology, the theology of the Western church. The East uh, Eastern Orthodoxy does not subscribe to the Athanasian creed. It was later, and I think probably some challenges to the content developed later, but all of that sort of after the fact. The creed is uh, prominent in the West. is Early is maybe the 5th century, but probably the 6th century. That's where it dates back to roughly. It's nebulous. There's a bunch of creeds that sound similar to it. And then it's adopted in the West and comes to us in our Lutheran confessions as one of the three foundational symbols. That's a technical term for confessions, along with the Apostles and Nicene Creeds. So the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed are the foundation of the Book of Concord often skipped because we're trying to get to the Augsburg Confession, but right before the Augsburg Confession and foundational to it is are these three creeds, and the Athanasian Creed included, obviously. The Augsburg Confession is itself, in the more old-school mode of thinking, a symbol or a creed or confession. It's a statement of faith. And then everything that comes after that in the Book of Concord is commentary on that initial creed or statement of faith which is the Augsburg Confession. Makes sense? That's how it finds its way into our hymnals and into our Sunday morning confession. All right, anything else uh in terms of just bare bones basics? Yeah, please. Other than- I think it is just the length of it, to tell you the truth. Now, there's, uh, well, (laughs) as I say that, that's probably the functional reason, okay? There's There's a longer rationale in regard to the creeds themselves and their usage within the church. And I don't have a great deal of certainty on this point because it would be very hard to gather this evidence or data. But it seems to be the case that for many places in many centuries, as the creeds developed and were put into use, the most common use is that the Apostles' Creed would not have been in the divine service. The Apostles' Creed was the baptismal creed. So it would have been used in the rite of holy baptism. The Nicene Creed, which is really the full, uh, just a fuller version of the Apostles in final form, would be used exclusively or almost exclusively in the divine service. And this creed, um, more of an academic creed, or and that's the wrong word, more of a creed a la the uh, other, similar creeds of the time period, but especially if you think of the Augsburg Confession. We don't confess the Augsburg Confession of the divine service. Yes, because it's too long, but also it just doesn't have a history in the church, and the Athanasian Creed doesn't either have that kind of history that the Nicene Creed does in specific. Does that kind of help you see maybe a little of the three-dimensionality? Again, these are generalities in terms of the use. So The creeds themselves have a fascinating and interesting history Uh, in terms of like the birth of the Apostles' Creed. You'd think if it's shorter it must be earlier. Well, in terms of its birth, yes, you can trace specific elements and constructs of the Apostles' Creed back to the 3rd century but in the form we have it, it doesn't come until the 8th century. Whereas the Nicene Creed is basically 4th century. 325 is the, is the Council of Nicaea, and 381 is the Creed of Nicaea and Constantinople, and that's the final form. Of course, you have the filioque that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's what filioque means, is and the Son. That becomes controversial, it's insert, I forget when it's inserted, somewhere around the 7th century, and then it becomes controversial in the 9th century and precipitates a split between East and West in the 11th century, 1054. Lots of dates. But that gives you a sense of sort of the interwoven nature of the Creed. So in terms of like final form, I mean minus the Filioque perhaps, you would have the Nicene Creed being the earliest. Okay, so the Athanasian Creed, as I mentioned, is basically divided, and the, the half sheet that you have in your hand has it perfectly divided. So aside from the first line or two and the last line or two, this is uh, true. And that is the first side of your handout is the first aspect of the creed, which is the nature of the Trinity. And if you flip over, The second side is the nature of the Son and the nature of the Incarnation. And those are the two things that this creed is intent upon confessing. So it'll be familiar to you you as we go along here. All right. If there's nothing else in terms of just preliminary stuff, we'll jump right into the text and take a look. Feel free to interrupt me if you have questions. Questions, comments, see something I don't see. Happy to have a dialogue here. Whoever desires to be saved must, above all, hold the Catholic faith. Now, again, we're at a period in time in which there isn't a capital R Roman, capital C Catholic, capital C Church. So Catholic here comes from the Greek word halos, which means according to the whole. And this is written at a time in which Christianity isn't divided in the sense of East or West or in the sense of formal denominations. I mean, there are divisions and have always been divisions in the Christian church from the time of the apostles forward. But this isn't controversial. And so when we say whoever desires to be saved must above all hold the Catholic faith, it shouldn't be scandalous to our ears at all. We want to hold the same faith as the entire Christian church on earth holds. Now, why is it connected immediately to salvation? Because if you don't have the Trinity as described here, then you actually have a different God. If you don't have Christ as described herein, then you don't actually have the one true Christ. So if you don't have the one true God, the Holy Trinity, or if you don't have the one true Christ, he who is both God and man in one person, can you be saved? No. Because whatever salvation you think you have is dependent upon a false God or a false Christ. So that's why this language of salvation and the absolute language, whoever desires to be saved must above all hold the Catholic faith. And then the next line, whoever does not keep it whole and undefiled will without doubt perish eternally. And the Catholic faith is this. So it goes on to describe God as Holy Trinity and Christ as, as God in human flesh. And obviously it should be self-evident that if you can't confess this, then you've got a different God or a different Christ, and thus you're outside of the Catholic faith, you're outside of salvation. So far so good? All right. The Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance. All right, so if you're thinking of a biblical proof text for this, one you probably already know, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the names, plural, name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, but three persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the word Trinity isn't in the Bible, but Trinity simply means triunity. Three persons. One divine essence or substance. Now let's get into the technical language here. Neither confusing the persons. So the persons are going to be the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. First person of the Trinity, second person of the Trinity, third person of the Trinity. And if you confuse the persons, you might say something like this. The Father died on the cross for you. Did the Father die on the cross? No. Did the Father become incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary? No. I know what it means, but you have to kind of, if you know the Athanasian Creed, you have to kind of get a little chuckle out of it. The crosses with the dove, the Holy Spirit right in the middle, it's like, was the Holy Spirit crucified for us? No. That would be to confuse the persons. So there's a distinction between the persons. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. There's a distinction between those persons. Okay, So we don't confuse the persons. That's one classification of error. The other is that we would divide the substance. So what happens when you divide the substance or the essence? You end up not with one God, one substance, one essence, but you would end up with three substances or three essences, three gods. Make sense? So we're guarding against two different ditches here. The one ditch we don't want to fall into is we don't want to confuse the persons. And the other ditch we don't want to fall into is we don't want to divide the substance. We don't want to commingle or unite the persons into one. That would be an error. But we don't want to take the substance or essence and divide it into three. That would be the opposite error. Make sense? Okay. So yeah, if you divide the substance, you end up with three gods, or two gods, or more gods. All right, on to the next line. For the Father is one person, the Son is another, and the Holy Spirit is another. We see this too, because the, fa- the Father and the Son, you know, they dialogue. The Son prays to the Father. Does the Father pray to the Son? No. No. So, you can see that they're persons and they've got a relationship. Does the Son speak His own mind or does He speak that which has been given to Him by the Father? Right. And then does the Holy Spirit speak His own mind or does He take the things that are Christ's and declare them unto us? Right, the latter. So, there's an economy or an ordering even within the Trinity to where the Father speaks to the Son. The Son speaks through the Spirit unto us. The Spirit brings us to faith in Christ. Christ brings us to the Father reconciled. See the kind of circular nature almost between how the persons are distinct and yet interact as a whole. So that's that we're at the distinction of the persons without confusing them. When we say the Father is one person, the Son is another, and the Holy Spirit is another. Next line. But the Godhead of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit is one. Okay, now we're talking about not dividing the substance. So the Godhead, that is the substance or essence, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit is one. So you could say this, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Does that mean the Father is the Son, and the Son is the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is the Father? No. So you're seeing the difference between the persons and the essence. Each person has the same essence or substance. Each person is true God. Father's true God, the Son's true God, the Holy Spirit's true God. Same essence. We're not going to divide the substance or the essence. But we're not going to confuse the persons either. Okay, so the Godhead, or the substance or the essence of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, is one. We worship one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. The Shema from Deuteronomy 6. The one name of the Holy Spirit, of of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, given in baptism. The glory of the three is equal, and the majesty co-eternal. So, in their essence, one person is not above another. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all have the same essence as God, and thus their glory is equal, and thus their majesty is co eternal. Do they have different roles? Do they have different interactions with each other? Yes, that's the distinction of the persons. But is one in and of its essence? Is one ontologically less than or more than another? No the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. If you said yes, then you have to say that one is less God than the other, or one participates in the divine Godhead or substance less than another person. You don't want to say any of that. It's a mess. Please. Like in the um, readings from last week, does Mm -hmm. Jesus say... um, the Father is greater than I? Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, and we'll actually get to that. There's a line in the Creed that <laughs> describes that. So there's a right way and a wrong way to understand that. There's been a recent controversy. I don't think it's infected Lutheranism very much. I'm just nominally aware of the controversy. But it's, I think it's the eternal subordination of the Son, that the Son is from eternity subordinate to the Father. I mean, that just, on its surface, flies in the face of Catholic Christianity of the Athanasian creed. Uh, there may be nuanced ways to understand it and maybe some such way in which it's salvaged, but, but we shouldn't play such games with such important things. So the, uh, when, when Christ says that um, the Father is greater than I, if we jump to uh, the... If you want to flip to the other side, we'll just jump to the answer here to make sure we get to it. And if you go to the third L, we're talking about Christ, and the line is, equal to the Father with respect to his divinity, less than the Father with, his respect, with respect to his humanity. So when Jesus is saying, the Father is greater than I, he's speaking as human being. He's not speaking as his essence of God, right? Yeah. So if you wanted one that was more positive, where he's saying, I'm equal to the Father, it would be, I and the Father are one. There would be Christ making a confession of their oneness, of their equality in respect to divinity. But on account of his incarnation, he's, he is submissive. He is less than the Father. Again, with respect to his humanity. That's why he prays. That's why he says, my God, my God, etc., Answer your question, hopefully. Yeah? Okay, great. All right, so then <clears throat> back over to the first page, and I think we're at the fourth L. Such as the Father is, such as the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. Again, we're talking about their sharing in the Godhead, the substance or essence of divinity however you want to say that. A that term, God. Please. It's a, it essentially means the same as the substance or essence. It's effectively saying that the one divine being or the one divine essence, the one divine Godhead um, I don't know where the specific etymology or nomenclature comes from, but conceptually that's what it means. It's not introducing anything like new or technical. Does that that get... You you still have a furrowed brow, maybe not. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh... No, not in a bad way. I just see my answer was maybe not sufficient. Well, yeah, so does that mean... Yeah, so you would go back and you would say, um, we worship one Godhead in Trinity and Trinity in unity. So the, so the idea of God, Godhead, substance, essence, and similar languages are all just words for the same concept. One God, one Godhead, one substance, one essence. So do you remember that line out of the Nicene Creed? Maybe the most important line out of the Nicene Creed. Being of one substance with the Father. So homoousius. Usius, substance, homo, of one substance, of the same substance as the Father. The alternative put forward was homoiousios, One letter difference, the Yoda. And homoi means like substance, of the father is jesus like substance of the father that would make him a different substance now you've divided the substance you have a substance of the father and a substance of the son two substances means two godheads two essences two gods so we can't say he's homoousios He's like substance with the Father. We have to confess he's homoousius. He's one substance with the Father. Same substance as the Father. So that's where that same concept emerges in the Nicene Creed. Make sense? As much as we can get there? I know. I mean, it's the Trinity. It's a mystery. (laughs) What we're really doing here is fencing off the errors of the Arians and others of like mind who either confuse the persons or divide the substance. Mm-hmm. do i read this just at face value right above the fourth l and the glory equals the majesty co-eternal why did they not just say the glory equal the majesty equal what they're making is two separate statements i guess i don't know that there just, that there's any difference that yeah, might okay. just be I, there's no historical let me see if I can pull it up really quick they're just, here. They're equal and eternal. Equalis gloria coeterna maestadius. Yeah, so the reign is forever and ever. No, they're different concepts. The co-reigning, um, the majesty and the sense of reigning, not just in the sense of like, oh, what a majestic mountain. Um, in the sense of reigning, okay. and so their regency, their majesty, their reigning okay. is co-eternal. It's not like the father reigned, and then begot his son, and then now his son co-reigns with him. That would make their reigns not co-eternal, so yeah, the language here is, uh, is of reign. Thus you have the temporal connotation of co-eternal. So they're all from eternity, which immediately makes it incomprehensible to us because we understand things chronologically, temporally, in time. It's impossible for us to do anything other than confess what God gives us to confess. To really wrap your mind around it is impossible. So co-eternal means they all existed from eternity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, even though the Father is, or the Son is begotten of the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. These aren't chronological things. We only think of them as chronological words, chronological categories. They aren't chronological. They're generative. They have to do with the being and essence of God as He exists outside of time. Yeah, please. That, that idea of co-reigning makes me think of the three kings. Oh, interesting. Yeah, a little typology there in the yeah, yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. Of course, the scripture doesn't tell us there's three. That's the problem. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's just the Magi. Yeah. We don't know if there's two or two thousand. No. <laughs> yeah, we three kings. It's a nice type. Maybe I'll uh, forget that and work it into a sermon, though, because I like it. <laughs> Was there another hand? I'm sorry. I thought I saw somebody just flinched. Okay. <laughs> All right. Good questions so far. So, uh, all right, I think we're on the fifth, uh, fourth L, such as the Father, such as the C. The C under the fourth L. <laughs> this is a weird way of doing it. But on the other hand, I'm glad we did it this way. We at least stand a chance of staying together. All right, the Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, the Holy Spirit uncreated. The Father infinite, the Son infinite, the Holy Spirit infinite. Now, you know that the Son incarnate, the Father knows things that he doesn't know. That's on account of his humanity, not on account of his divinity. He grows in wisdom and stature. That's on account of his humanity, not his divinity. Now you're glimpsing, though, the mystery of the Incarnation. Why the Incarnation? You can never wrap your mind fully around it. How can he who knows all things learn? It's where if you think you understand the... uh, The Incarnation, you don't really understand it. If you think you understand the Trinity, you don't really understand it. We only have what God gives us, and we can confess, and we can confess in such a way that we preclude obvious errors. That's what the Athanasian Creed is all about. Confessing what God has given us to confess while precluding as many errors as we can. Okay, hopefully you're hanging in there. So we have uncreated, all three persons uncreated, all three persons infinite, and then the Father eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Spirit eternal. All three are eternal. So far, we have distinguished um, between the persons, but we've also shown that they have the same substance. Next line. And yet there are not three eternals, but one eternal. How would you get three Eternals? Well, only if you divide the substance. Don't divide the substance. It's not three Eternals. There's one Eternal. And all three persons share in that eternality, if you will, just as they share in the one substance, of the same substance. Not three Eternals, but one Eternal, just as there are not three uncreated or three infinites, but one uncreated and one infinite. So again, what we're doing here, don't don't be confused by the algebra, what we're doing here is we're saying that the Godhead, the one true God, is eternal, is uncreated, infinite, eternal, etc. And the three persons share this equally. All right, continuing on, just as there are not three uncreated or three infinites, but one uncreated and one infinite. Just all the same. It's all a fancy way of saying there's not three gods, there's one God. One God and three persons, and the three persons are equal in terms of their ontology as one God, participating in that one Godhead or substance or essence. Okay, moving on. In the same way, the Father is Almighty, the Son Almighty, the Holy Spirit Almighty. And yet there are not three Almighties, but one Almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and that might be uh, as as much of a place where it just gets as clear as day as to what's going on right here at this line. Each person is God. That's what's being said. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Oh, so are the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit all the same? No, the persons are not confused. They're distinct. But are they all God? Yes. Oh, so you're saying there's three gods? No, there's not three gods. There's one God in three persons. You see how this works? So it's just, it's hemming in the mystery of the Trinity as it's given to us in such a way that the enemies can't make us into polytheists on the one hand, or on the other hand, get us to deny the persons of the Trinity or confuse them. All of this, as you can, I hope you can see, just generally speaking, flows right from the scriptures and the scriptural teaching on these concepts, And you can go find lines, you can go find scripture references for almost every one of these, where, you know, the Spirit is called Almighty, um, and the Son is called Almighty, or something similar, and the Father. You can go find references for just about all of this, if you wanted to, like, proof-text it out, so to say. Okay, so the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet there are not three gods, but one God. So the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord, and yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. Just as we are compelled by the Christian truth to acknowledge each distinct person as God and Lord, so also we, are we prohibited by the Catholic religion to say that there are three gods or lords. Uh, just notice the interchangeability between Christian and Catholic. That was very common, and it's why... Um, even today, it, was, it wasn't controversial in the 16th century. Um, it's not controversial today. It shouldn't I don't think it's ever really been controversial. Catholic and Christian mean the same thing, creedily. To be Catholic, small c, Catholic, is to believe according to what the whole Christian church on earth believes. To be Christian is to believe what the whole Christian church on earth... I mean, they're the same thing. So that's where Christian and Catholic are used interchangeably in the creeds. And nobody gets in a wrinkle. Yeah. Just as a point of interest in my secular mm-hmm. college there was a unitarian in one of my English classes and he accused Christians of being monothe- uh, what, what do you call it? Poly- Poly- polytheists. polytheists. Sure. And even the professor as well as most of the class said, "No, that's not true." <laughs> mhm. Yeah, I mean, we expressly deny being polytheists. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, next line then. The Father is not made, nor created, nor begotten by anyone. Notice what we're doing. We're focusing on the person of the Father, and now we're going to articulate how the persons aren't confused but are distinct. So the Father has these characteristics, not made, nor created, nor begotten by anyone. The Son is neither made nor created, but begotten of the Father alone. So see how the Father is not begotten, but the Son is begotten. Distinction between the persons. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. All right. So the Spirit's unique in that he proceeds. The Son is unique in that he is begotten. The Father is unique in that none of these are true of him. <laughs> okay? So this is how we distinguish the persons, biblically speaking. And you can find all of this language, again, in the scriptures, if you're interested in proof texting this out. Thus there is one Father, not three fathers. That would be a way of confusing the persons, one father, not three fathers, one son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. And in this trinity, none is before or after another. Now that's true uh, chronologically, it's also true in terms of like power or authority. None is before or after another, none is greater or less than another. But the whole three persons are co-eternal with each other and co-equal. So that in all things, as has been stated above, the Trinity in unity and unity in Trinity is to be worshipped. Therefore, whoever desires to be saved must think thus about the Trinity. And if you fall into error, you fall into polytheism, you can't be saved, or into a denial of the persons, you no longer have the Christian God. So that's why they can state so outright that you must think this way in order to be saved. Now, do you have to know and understand all of this to the depth or detail I've given or beyond? No. But what you believe can't be in contradiction to this, self-evidently. All right, thus far the Trinity. If we flip to the next page, we're over on the Incarnation. Any questions before we move on from the Trinity? So far, so good? Yeah. Westward leading, still proceeding, but um, the Holy Spirit, but proceeds Another. Oh, nice! All right, all right. <laughs> in in the hymn, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I don't know enough about that hymn. Okay. Yeah. The Father, the the Holy Spirit proceeds, and again, we confess from the Father and the Son. That can obviously be backed up by the. Uh, by scriptural quotations. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that'll suffice. We don't need to go too deep on that. Okay, so over to the incarnation on the back half of your handout. But it is also necessary for everlasting salvation that one faithfully believe the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, if you mess up Jesus, you got the wrong Jesus. That's also why it's essential. Now, one thing that can just really help you in terms of building a little mental category, a little mental picture in your mind. So, you've got one God, and that's that's one in essence, and then you've got three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The second person of the Trinity is the Son, and that person has two natures. So, you can almost picture the little diagram if you want to think of a Triangle, there's one God, the three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then, when we talk about the person of the Son, we're going to say he has two natures. He's one person, but two natures. Now, there's a parallel aspect. The same way we want to confess one God in three persons, we want to confess, when it comes to Christ, one person, two natures. And you can imagine that those natures we're not going to confuse and the person we're not going to divide. See how, when it comes to the Trinity, we're not going to divide the substance or essence, nor are we going to confuse the persons. The same parallel logic applies to the incarnation. We've got one person, two natures. We're not going to confuse the natures and we're not going to divide the person. All the Christological heresies do one of those two things. And the first, I don't know, five or six centuries are just rife with Christological heresies because someone clever is always coming up with some new idea and trying to confuse the natures or divide the person. All right, so hopefully that gives you some mental framework and a way to just think clearly about the Trinity and then the person of Christ. And you've got one God, three persons, one person, Christ, two natures, divine and human. But it is also necessary for everlasting salvation that one faithfully believe the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is the right faith that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is at the same time both God and man. Now there are the two natures. He is God, begotten from the substance of the Father before all ages. So he is generated or begotten from the Father in eternity. He's without beginning or end. That's the tough part to wrap your mind around. And he's begotten of the substance of the Father. So does he have the same substance as the Father? Yes. So this confesses exactly what the Nicene Creed confesses. He's begotten from the substance of the Father before all ages. And he is man, born from the substance of his mother in this age. So he receives his humanity from the Virgin Mary. That's all it's saying. So he's begotten in eternity and born in time. He's begotten of the Father alone in eternity. He's born of his mother alone in temporality. Augustine liked to play, well, he's not alone in this. But Augustine's just made it popular and preached it almost every other Advent sermon. There are two births or generations of Christ. There is the one in eternity from his Father alone. You can see this beautiful symmetry. You can see why it had to be a virgin why he takes his flesh entirely from her. It's this beautiful symmetry, in eternity born from the Father alone, in time born from a mother alone. So two births, one eternal, one temporal. Or, to use the technical language of the creed, once he is begotten, then he is born. So he's begotten from the substance of the Father, thus he is true God. He's born from the substance of his mother, thus he is true man. See how that works? All right. Not rocket science, I hope. So after the... Okay, or did I confuse something? Is there a distinction between from and of? Probably not, but let me look. From the substance of the father. If they said of the substance of the father, it's fine. You would just say begotten from. It's pro- I think that I think that's a, that's better English. From yeah, like yeah, begotten from the substance, begotten of the substance. We're I don't care. It. I don't think. I don't know. We're so loose with our prepositions. It's probably the same. It's and then, the original language, but it's a son of God. But anyway. Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't matter. I don't think it matters. What matters is the parallelism from the substance of the Father from the substance of His Mother. See that? That's what matters. So he has his substance or essence as a true human being from his mother. He has his substance or essence as true God from his father. Okay, then right after the colon, perfect God and perfect man, um, whole God, whole man, complete in and of themselves. Okay, but now as soon as you are what we're doing here is we're not confusing the natures so you have perfect god and perfect man are we going to say that they're two distinct persons no there's the rub right so we're distinguishing the the person or we're distinguishing the natures but we're not going to divide the person perfect god and perfect man composed of a rational soul and human flesh So that's describing him being a perfect man composed of a rational soul and human flesh. I suspect, I don't know for certain, but I suspect why that line is in there is because of a heresy called Apollinarianism. And Apollinarianism was this idea that he took on the flesh of the Virgin Mary like a shell, and then what became his rational soul or personality is the divine word. So, But what happens then is, in what sense is he true man? He's not. He's got the body of a true man, but the ghost in the machine is God. So he's true God, but he's not true man. He's not whole man. You have to add in the rational soul for him to be true whole man. There's this famous line from the early church. I can't remember who it originates with exactly, Uh, but it's it's kind of echoed everywhere. Whatever is not assumed is not redeemed. So if he doesn't assume a human soul or human rationality, that isn't redeemed. If he just assumes a human body, like a ghost in a machine, then only the body can be redeemed. He has to be soul and body. He has to be whole man so that the whole of man can be redeemed. Mm-hmm. Is his soul, the rational soul, mm-hmm. like Adam, the first Adam, like it's without sin. It's without sin, that's, that's for certain. Adam, that's meaning. Mm-hmm. Like he's perfectly rational. Like, we're not... Perfect. Oh, I don't think it's making that confession, even though that that's true. Um, I, I don't think it's... I, I think it, it, the, the point of adding this in is it's describing what it means to be a whole or complete or perfect man. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. yeah to be a whole man namely to, or to be a perfect man a complete or, or whole man is to have a rational soul and human flesh and there were some in the early church Apollinarius among them denying that he had a rational soul in doing that you're denying that he's a true human being he's only partly human okay so again just zooming back out a little bit Perfect God and perfect man, composed of a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father with respect to his divinity, less than the Father with respect to his humanity. And we did a brief descriptor of that before and where that comes from in the scriptures. So hopefully that's not... uh... And that's, by the way, is an answer to a whole number of scriptures where it looks like Jesus is submitting himself to the Father or... Um, being obedient to the Father, or laying the kingdom at the Father's feet, or you know whatever else. Yeah, all of that, because he's, it, it doesn't challenge the fact that he's equal to the Father with respect to his divinity. It's just that he's true man, and so in that regard, he is less than the Father with respect to his humanity, and owes, owes his Father full obedience the way Adam and Eve, or any other human being, does. So we're just going to confess that, because that's what the Scriptures say. All right, next line, although he is God and man, so he has these two natures. He is God and man. He is not two but one Christ. Just because he has two natures doesn't mean he's two persons. So one of the early ways, and there's many, many variations on this, but one of the early ways, uh, the early heresies was to it was basically you can put it under this umbrella called adoptionism. And it's this idea that, um, whether in the womb or later in his life, even maybe at his baptism, some asserted, you have Jesus as a true human being, and then the Son of God adopts him and becomes one with him like two boards glued together, like two boards nailed together. The problem with that is what? You don't just have two natures, you have two persons, You've got the person of the divinity and the person of the humanity glued together like boards. Those are two persons, not two natures. So, adoptionism is the idea that there's this man and then the the pre-incarnate Word adopts him and the two become one. That has two persons. That's rejected. I mean, you can't think of any scripture that sounds like that or speaks that way. So... This is, uh, this is rejected here in this creed, obviously. He is God and man, but not two. These are two natures, not two persons. He is not two, but one Christ. All right. One, however, not by the conversion of the divinity into flesh. If the divinity becomes flesh, Uh, the divinity is lost, and he actually becomes something like Hercules, like a God-man, neither God nor man. (laughs) So it's not the conversion of the divinity into the flesh. It also has other ontological uh, problems that will reveal itself next, but by the assumption of the humanity into God. So it's not like God is swallowed up in the humanity. Rather, the humanity is swallowed up in God. Okay, that's the important thing. And I think that's immediately graspable. That's not rocket science. So once more, not by the conversion of the divinity into flesh, but by the assumption of humanity into God. It's not like the divinity changes into man, converts into man. Again, you maybe have something like a Hercules figure. But rather they are one by the assumption of the humanity into God. So, the second person of the Trinity is God. He doesn't cease to, become, he doesn't cease to be God and become man. He is, is and remains God and assumes human nature into his divinity. So, you think how like, even the language of was made man or became man can carry a wrong sense? It can carry a sense of like, he was once God, but then he became a man. Now he's God no longer. That's rejected explicitly here. He was once God, but then he was made man or something like that. Like, now he's no longer God. Rejected. But rather, he is and remains God and assumes humanity into himself. If the divinity converts into into the flesh, then we no longer have without sin. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah, you, well, yeah, you no longer have a divinity then, that's the problem. There will be no salvation because the divinity now is in the sinful flesh, so we can no longer see Jesus without sin, because he becomes, his divinity is assumed to the sinful flesh, does that make sense? Yeah, to some extent it does, yeah, to some extent it does. Yeah, so he doesn't cease to be God, he remains God, and as God becomes man. So that's all that's, I mean, it's a beautiful, elegant line, and maybe it has broader application. But to simplify, you know, once more, he is one Christ, one, not by the conversion of the divinity into flesh, but by the assumption of the humanity into God. I mean, another way to think of this is like, practically, it's like the Godhead is not limited by the flesh of Jesus. Remember how Jesus can uh, do miracles like raise the dead or multiply loaves of bread? The divinity can work through the humanity, isn't limited by the humanity, okay? And then the flip side of that is just the assumption of the humanity into God. It's just a different perspective on the same reality that is that God can do God's stuff through the humanity. Okay. So, I mean, really they're identical ideas. They're just expressed in different senses, in different ways, but the identical truth being confessed. All right. One altogether, not by confusion Of substance, but by the unity, but by unity of person. Okay, for as and this will this will help. For as the rational soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ. So we're not confusing together the two natures or the two substances here. We're not confusing together God and man. If we did that again, we'd end up with Hercules. We'd end up with something that's neither God nor man. That's the problem. So we're not going to do that. That's not what the scriptures teach. So we have one—we uh, have God and man, these two distinct natures in one Christ. So in the same way that you, when you die your soul is separated from your body. So, in that sense, your body and your soul are distinct, right? But God has created you to be a human being, and a human being, properly speaking, is body and soul. So even though you have this soul nature and this body nature, and they're distinct, you are nonetheless one person. That's the analogy they're using when they say, "Uh, I lost my place. When they say, for as the rational soul and flesh, two distinct parts of being a human being, is one man, so God and man is one Christ. You see the analogy being used? So you have a body and you are a soul. These two things can be separated, but together you're one person. You can separate the divinity and the humanity of Christ, but together it's one Christ. All right, five minutes left. Can we do it? See some eyes glazing over. That's okay. (laughs) All right. For as the rational soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ, who suffered for our salvation, descended into hell, rose again the third day from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father, God Almighty, from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. So virtually identical content to the apostles, and especially the Nicene Creed in that confession of events. Um, Jesus obviously suffered for our salvation, explicitly stated that what he was doing on the cross was for our salvation. Um, He descended into hell. There's different takes on that. But the general Lutheran take, of course, is the most important thing is he doesn't descend to hell to suffer, he descends to hell victorious. You have different interpretations, and the Lutheran confessions don't bind us too tightly, but you have different interpretations and understandings of that event uh, within church fathers, and really within faithful Lutherans, even up to the present, I would argue. He doesn't descend to hell to suffer. He descends to hell to proclaim his victory. All right, and I think all the rest is uncontroversial. Correct me if I'm wrong. Let's otherwise wrap it up. At his coming, so now we're talking about his second coming or his parousia, at his coming all people will rise again with their bodies. This is taught in the book of Romans and elsewhere, the universal resurrection. Christ's death on the cross so destroys death that death has no choice but to give up her dead. Every last person who dies will rise again because Christ is risen. Now, does that mean every last person is saved? No, it doesn't mean that. But it does mean that the, that the resurrection itself is universal. At his coming, all people will rise again with their bodies and give an account concerning their own deeds. So this is pictured for us like in Matthew 25 with uh, wise and foolish virgins, with the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. That's the kind of language and imagery that's being used. So they give an account for their own deeds, and those who have done good will enter into eternal life, and those who have done evil into eternal fire. So you see eternal life and eternal fire are symmetrical, as, is, as our Lord teaches. You don't have one without the other. This is the Catholic faith. Whoever does not believe it faithfully and firmly cannot be saved. So the person and work of Christ, pretty 101. Um, In terms of the good and those who have done good and those who have done evil, that's just the way that the scriptures speak in many, many texts. But think, for example, of the wise and foolish. I mean, does that make us Roman Catholic? The answer is no. Think of the wise and the foolish virgins. Remember how this materializes. Some didn't bring oil and they can't enter in. Some did bring oil and they can enter in. So you look and you go, oh, the oil's the difference. One had good works and the other had bad works or absence of good works. That's the distinguishing point. Trace it further back. We're told right off the bat that there were virgins and some of them were wise and some of them were foolish. Just like we're told um, that whoever has, you know, visited the least, of whatever you've done the least of these, my brothers, you've done unto me, whoever's visited the least of these in prison, and visited them when they're sick, and clothed them, fed them, and whatever else, these enter into eternal life. Those who have not done it into eternal death. But trace backward from the works to the persons, and you see a distinction. There are, just as there are wise and foolish virgins, there are sheep and there are Goats. So the way that God views us is if you're a sheep, if you're a wise virgin, if you're a Christian, then there's no uh, condemnation for you. There's only acknowledgement of the good that you've done. On the other hand, if you are a goat, if you are a foolish virgin, if you are an unbeliever, there's no good works because everything you did was apart from faith. Everything you did was self-serving. So, your only receipt is condemnation. And that's really the essence. I mean, this is taught elsewhere, even clearer by St. Paul, but that's where we get it right from Jesus himself. There's no reason to be scandalized in the least by these last lines. They're completely the teaching of Scripture. And they don't disagree with the Lutheran confession. As is obvious, I hope, by the fact that the Lutherans included it. (laughs) All right, we made it. I thank you for your indulgence and patience. We'll wrap up here. And if you have any questions, I'll hang out for a bit afterward. The Lord be with you.